topic. But first, we're continuing a conversation that many people have been noticing. If you've been to a restaurant lately, you may have seen a help wanted sign at the front. You may have talked to some of the staff members and talked to them about staffing issues. I was away this weekend. I had a glorious, quick little trip to the Sunshine Coast of, uh, well, the Sunshine Coast of BC. It was absolutely gorgeous. I loved every minute, but every restaurant I went into, and I packed a few in there for the weekend, everyone was short-staffed, had help-wanted signs, and one, which is an extremely popular place, especially in the summer, even right now, with tourists flocking back to that area, they are closing every Monday and Tuesday because they don't have staff to keep the restaurant open. So what is causing this labor shortage? A lot of uh, difference of opinions on this, but we are joined now by Chris Matheson, General Manager of the Grist Mill and Gardens in Karameas, BC. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Uh, are you experiencing difficulties trying to get staff as well? Yeah, it was definitely a, a challenge this spring uh, to bring on, to bring on staff. We managed to, to get ourselves fully staffed, fortunately, unlike a lot of other places. And how did you manage to do that? Uh, I, the combination of being a good work environment and you know being really aggressive in our hiring, and um, you know a little bit of good luck too, I think. What is it, do you think, because there seems to be a difference of opinion or some different ideas out there as to what's causing the labor shortage from what you've seen in your business, where did people go? Oh, um, the re- I don't know if a lot of people realize when they go to a restaurant, but re- restaurants are, are, are difficult businesses to run uh, in a good year. When, when everything's firing on all cylinders, you're, you're, you're lucky to, to get maybe a 1% or 2% profit on the, 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 the business that you're doing. I mean, there's tight margins. It's always a challenge with staffing and with supply chains and all those sorts of things. And what COVID has done over the last 18 months is just absolutely blown up almost every part of the business. You know, the supply chains have kind of fallen apart, and it's been a struggle to get basic supplies sometimes. Uh, staff who were often let go, have since gone on to find other jobs, often outside of the industry, because, frankly, the industry is kind of a tough one to work for sometimes. We've, you know, over the last bunch of years, I think we've created a lot of our own problems, and those, those chickens are finally coming back to roost. Do you think it's also an issue with the federal government assistance, what was CERB then became the, the recovery benefit, people going on the extended EI benefits? Are you seeing people that are choosing to stay on that until it runs out in September rather than coming back to work? No, that, that, that's, that's not what I see on the ground at all. I mean, I, I hear that kind of chatter a lot. I think it's a really easy target. Uh, but I think that that says more about somebody's you know, political ideas and political persuasion, uh, about what they, how they think other people act than what's really going on. What, what I think is actually happening is that a whole lot of people have had an earth-shattering year and a half, uh, you know, a real soul-searching time for a lot of us as we were locked at home and our lives were completely upended. So it's not surprising that you might want to walk away from a job that was shift work at weird hours for for minimum wage. And, you know, often in some restaurants, at least, you know, still have that very hostile work environment. So, you know, I'm not surprised. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is that COVID affected different industries differently, just in terms of mortality. People in the food service industry had a higher mortality rate than almost any other occupation out there because they were those that were on the front lines were on the front lines with less PPE than a lot of other industries, like medical, for example. 
Do you think it's also vaccination rates and not saying that people in the service industry are, are choosing not to get vaccinated, but maybe they're in a younger age bracket that hasn't got that second dose yet? I, I, I'm sure that that plays a role as well. I mean, there's, you know, life is complicated. There's 100,000 factors involved and lots of people are making their own best choices right now. But I don't think that it's, uh, you know, government support, which was desperately needed at the time. I don't think it's fair to blame that anyways. Uh, yeah, and I, and I get that, and, and not fair perhaps to blame that 100%. But I, I think that what that argument being made or that that question being brought out is why do we still have government support that's paying people to stay at home when you walk down the street and you see almost every business has a help wanted sign? That's, and that's, and that's a, a great question and obviously well above my pay grade. Uh, I, I leave that to people a lot smarter than me. I, I, I just know that uh, I don't see a lot of people who are just sitting on their butts not working for the sake of not working. If they're not working, it's because they, they, they're trying to reconnect with family and friends. They're trying to bring balance back to their lives. There's a whole lot of other things going on there, too. Do you think there will be permanent changes then? Like you said, this kind of blew up the industry. Some people have understandably left. They've taken this opportunity to do something else. But do you think it will have any kind of permanent change as far as how the industry operates? I, I, I don't have any doubt of that at all. I, I, you know, those that have done well have really succeeded through the last uh, through the last 18 months. Those who were able to pivot to takeout uh, using services like, you know, DoorDash and, and stuff like that. You know, they've, 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 they've done pretty well for themselves considering and they're going to come out even further ahead. That often happens when these sorts of big events happen. But we're going to see a lot of failing businesses over the next little, little while, unfortunately. But some of them, maybe it was time for them to consider something, doing something else anyways. Uh, you tweeted out in response to one of the comments on this that you, you say this a little tongue-in-cheek, but uh, you're suggesting that the restaurant workers all took skip-the-dishes jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and, it's, and it's not untrue. I mean, if you, if you can be in your own car listening to your own music and not having to work in a hot kitchen and, you know, trying to pump out, uh, you know, 40 or 50 meals an hour, you're, 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 you're probably going to be happier in life, right? Yeah, I guess I think for a lot of people that is more appetizing for sure. Uh, what does the rest of the summer look like for you? Well, we're, we're, we're lucky. I mean, we're here in the Smilkameen Valley right next to the Okanagan. So uh, ignoring the whole fire situation at the moment, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a safe place for a lot of lower mainlanders to come on vacation this year. So we're seeing a lot of people. We're really, really uh, looking up. We didn't even qualify for, for wage subsidy, my business, last year because we were busy with uh, Vancouver rates coming up. So hopefully they keep coming and exploring the rest of the province because we've got a lot to offer. There's a reason tourists come and visit us. So, you know, come and explore this year. All right. Sounds good. Chris, thanks so much for coming back on the show and chatting with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Have a good day. Thanks for being with us. Well, a lot of people are taking road trips, are exploring different parts of the province, even different parts of the country. And if you have been, maybe you've noticed what appears to be an increase in the number of pickup trucks on Canadian streets. Well, an editorial that was written in the Globe and Mail is getting a lot of response. It's getting a lot of attention, so much that the Premier of Alberta actually changed his Twitter photo to show him sitting in the driver's seat of a pickup truck. The editorial basically says, well, this is the title, it says, uh, the opinion is that pickup trucks are a plague on Canadian streets, and then goes into how pickups have changed over the years, how they used to be really used by people who needed them, whether it was because you were a contractor, you 
needed to haul things around and that they've become quite mainstream. And the writer of the editorial goes on to basically say people don't need pickup trucks and they, again, are a plague on Canadian streets. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. And in a few moments, we'll open up the phone lines to get your take on this. But who better to join this conversation than Zach Spencer, who is a veteran automotive journalist. Zach, thanks so much for coming back on the line with us. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, would you uh, agree, disagree? What are your thoughts on somebody saying pickups are a plague on Canadian streets? Well, I'll just ask you a quick question. It's a little um, a statistical question. What do you think? Take pickup trucks out of the equation. The fastest growing segments of the Canadian auto industry in the last six months, uh, the first six months of 2021, what do you think the fastest growing segment of the auto industry has been? Like, the, like what's selling the most? Yep. No, the fastest uh, growth. Okay. Uh, is it pickup trucks? No, take pickup trucks out. <laughs> oh, take them out. Okay. Is it SUVs? Large full-size SUVs and large full-size luxury SUVs. Huh. So people vote with their wallet and they are saying they love pickup trucks and they love big SUVs. And that comes down to the fact that we're going in, we've moved in the last 20 years to the SUV world. We all used to drive cars. We used to drive, you know, the the most popular uh, form of transportation in Canada outside of pickup trucks 20 years ago were compact cars, the Honda Civic, the Toyota Corolla. Now everybody's moved up in size. They've gone to SUVs. Now it's RAV4s, CRVs, and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the manufacturers have improved fuel economy. So the fuel economy you used to get with a Honda Civic, you can now get with a CRV. So people are, are getting bigger and bigger vehicles. I mean, you, I'm not sure what you drive, Joe, but I know the vehicle I used to drive years ago was a car. Now we have an SUV, and that's what's happened in the industry. I may have just purchased a brand new big SUV along with everybody else, apparently. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, that, that's the issue. And yes. what's happened also is that people maybe used to have an SUV in a car, uh, and now they can wrap it all up in a pickup truck. And most people in uh, with pickup trucks, they haul around air in the back. They're not using them for work. And this article, actually, when I asked your producer to send it to me, I thought, well, this is just going to be an environmental hit piece. But it's actually, it was well-written, it was well-researched, and it was uh, actually quite balanced, talking about about all of the things that happen when you have a bigger vehicle. They use more fuel, they're heavier. Uh, if you get hit by one, they're more dangerous. But everybody else's vehicle is also getting bigger at the same time. Yeah, and I know he also used a lot of information coming out of the United States and the number of pickups that have sold in the United States and that as well. Uh, what do you think it is then? What is what is drawing people? Is it the safety of being in a much bigger vehicle on the street or what is drawing people to this? Well, that's part of it is that people who have owned an SUV, they like the fact they sit up higher, they see down the road, they feel safer in them. It's bigger. If you're in a bigger vehicle, you have a greater chance of surviving a, 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 a big accident. Now, when you're in the biggest vehicle, you obviously are top dog. The problem is, where does it end? Uh, all cars are getting safer. All vehicles um, have m- many more safety features included in them. So it's not safety. It's lifestyle. We have a situation where people love SUVs. And then the next step up from an SUV is a truck. Um, and people are buying them. Now, I think that there should... 
um, weight of vehicles. And you should pay a higher tax based on the weight of the vehicle. Because the vast majority of people who buy these trucks are not using them for work. They maybe tow a boat or a camper trailer once in a while in the summer. Um, but uh, they're for most of the time, just driving around in a much heavier, bigger, more expensive vehicle to fill. And it uses a lot more fuel. Now, there are, there are new uh, vehicles coming, like Ford just introduced the hybrid F-150. F-150 is the best-selling pickup truck, our best-selling vehicle, period, in Canada for 53 years in a row. Um, so what we have is um, new technology, but it's expensive. You know, the, the Ford Mustang Mach-E just came out. That's their electric SUV. It's expensive. So I can't imagine what the price is going to be of the, of the full electric F-150 that's coming uh, later this year. It's going to be a very expensive vehicle. So most people, when they go to the dealer, are just going to go back to the regular gasoline models. Right. Even though the price of gas, too, is extremely expensive right now. What about the amount you drive? And I should clarify this so I don't get hate mail from people who uh, heard me say that I bought an SUV. I don't drive to work. I actually don't drive very much at all. I maybe drive once a week. And mm-hmm. and so it's not like I bought this vehicle because I'm commuting an hour every day and I'm on the roads all of the time. I did it because for many of the reasons you just said, I like being higher up. I feel like it's safer for everybody else on the road when I'm a little bit higher up and can see the out see what's out and around me. And it was my personal choice on what I wanted. But what about the amount of time we spend on the road? Well, the the interesting thing is, wasn't the carbon tax supposed to fix all of this? No. What the carbon tax has done is just made everything more expensive. The price of fuel has gone up. People are, are, are saying, okay, you're going to charge me more for fuel to drive a bigger vehicle. I just have to now budget more of my income towards uh, fuel for the vehicle. Uh, so there, so uh, there, might be a, there might be a way to, like they have in Europe, for example, they do it different, differently there. They, they do it depending on which country it is. Sometimes it's on the size of the engine, and other times it's on the vehicle weight. And there could be a case made to say, you know, if you really need a big truck for, um, you know, and you're working a construction site, or you're taking things to build a house or something like that, then you need it for work. But a lot of people are just driving bigger vehicles because they can't. And that really is, uh, you know, the way it's going. So either you're going to have to put the carbon tax way up, which is not politically um, feasible, but there could be a case made for adding a road tax of some kind for the weight or the size of the engine. But then car manufacturers get sneaky and they just make a smaller engine that's more powerful uh, to get around those taxes. That's what they do in Europe. Like, uh, for example, I'll pick a vehicle like uh, the Golf, the Volkswagen Golf that's sold in Europe. It's sold with about eight or ten different engines, depending on which country it's sold in, to get around the taxes. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned as well the electric SUVs. I have a friend who just test drove one and said it was quite amazing to drive this. I think she was driving the Volkswagen uh, electric SUV. Do you think too it's and again not to only talk about buying my vehicle but I did so thinking this is going to be the last gas engine vehicle I buy and, and there must be other people that are thinking the same thing that yes we will be going to electric we will be going to different type vehicles but we're kind of at that timing right now where it's the last time you're going to do this well the doesn't support that. I mean, British Columbia, we have a higher percentage of electric vehicles bought as new because the government is paying you to buy a car. So uh, when does that end? When does the federal government and the provincial government stop paying people to buy personal transportation? I'm totally opposed to these 
rebates because you're not getting any cars off the road. Why don't you put all the money into transportation, get more sky trains, get more buses, get more uh, transportation to get people out of their cars. When you give somebody $8,000 to get a rebate on a car and then you add $5,000, depending on the jurisdiction in in, in, in Canada, from the feds, you're just paying people to replace the car they have now with one that's electrified. Uh, The reality is for most people, electric cars are still uh, prohibitively expensive, especially the SUVs. So we still have a ways to go, and you're right, probably in the years to come, there will be some form of electrification in your next car. It might not be electric, because I don't think the prices are going to tumble down as fast as people think. We're not there yet. The, you know, Here's another pop quiz for you. What percentage do you think of new vehicles are sold in Canada that are fully electric? I would say 10%. 4%. Okay. It's actually between 3 and 4%, and it's even less in the United States. Um, so we have 90 plus percent of new vehicles to be replaced by electric. We're not anywhere near that point yet. And the other thing is, now this is the other thing that the governments don't think about. People are going to hoard their cars. They're going to say, I'm just going to keep my car. A car, if you maintain it properly now, will run indefinitely if you look after it. So a lot of people are going to say, you know what, I'm just going to keep the car I have and I'll just keep driving it until, um, you know, there's something better to replace it with. But we'll have to wait and see. I think I think a, um, a weight tax for vehicles is probably um, the way that we should go if we want to get people out of pickup trucks for personal transportation. Isn't it a good thing, though, if you keep your car maintained and you have a vehicle that's not spewing black smoke into the air, if you do that, isn't it a good thing if you're keeping it and keeping it for as long as you can rather than the emissions of, of making a new vehicle and replacing vehicles more often? Absolutely. You know, the, the in-use um, time when the car is being driven is uh, the biggest component of, of uh, carbon that goes into the atmosphere. But making a vehicle and scrapping a vehicle definitely has an impact. So you want a car that has uh, a fairly modern emission system on it. So a car that's been made in the last 15, 20 years, if you maintain it and you keep it running well, yeah, it's the, for sure, it's going to save you money in the long run. Um, I always say to people who email me and say, I want to buy a new car because gas is expensive. And I say, buying a new car is an expensive way to save a few bucks on gas. It really is because you've got all the taxes, the uh, fees you've got to pay and all those. If the car is, you know, finished and it's time to get a new one. Yeah. Now shop for something that's more efficient. I I still think for most people, hybrid vehicles as the stopgap between now and full electric really is the way to go. Like Toyota is going to have, for example, they're the leaders in hybrids. of an uh, electrified model of every vehicle that they sell by 2025, okay? So we're only three, four years away from 2025 models being sold. They want to have a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid of every single trim they sell in the next uh, four or five years. I mean, that is amazing. Like, for example, uh, you know, we talked about a RAV4 as the best-selling compact utility. The hybrid RAV4 is the best RAV4 to buy. It's better than the gas model, and it gets amazing fuel economy. So you can have a little bit of your cake and eat it, too, right now. And from what I understand, too, that particular vehicle, there's even a huge wait list for it right now. It's so popular. 
Well, it's interesting because I was at a um, Carter Gen, uh, GM in Burnaby picking up a test unit, a Chevrolet, um, uh, just yesterday. There were no cars in the lot. They have a massive lot. It's a big GM dealer. There's no cars. There's no inventory. Everybody's suffering. So it's not just Toyota, it's GM, it's Ford, it's, it's everybody. This part shortage, this chip shortage is, is turning into a major nightmare for these car um, manufacturers and retailers. We just don't have any inventory. All right, Zach, always good to chat with you about all things automotive related. Thank you so much for joining us again. Anytime, Jill. Talk to you again. Well, if you look back to when the pandemic was starting, when we were starting to understand more about what we were dealing with, I think we can all agree what we saw in some long-term care facilities right across the country was horrible and really put a light on what needed to be changed and needed to improve moving forward. Well, there is a new survey out. The Angus Reid Institute has asked Canadians what they would like to see when it comes to change for long-term care and if they would be willing to pay more for that change. Shachi Curl joins me now, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What were you asking specifically about the future of long-term care? It was a pretty comprehensive study. So first of all, we wanted to understand people's perceptions of the long-term care industry, to what extent the pandemic has changed those perceptions, whether people have worries or concerns about having to place a loved one into long-term care, given what they saw over the last year, or if they have any concerns for themselves. We also really wanted to understand the experiences of people who had had a loved one or still have a loved one in long-term care over the last year and and what was that experience like for them. So very comprehensive study, uh, but really I think one of the biggest takeaways is that 80% of Canadians, four in five people say that the pandemic fundamentally changed the way they view the long-term care industry. And was there a connection between or did you ask the people when you were asking for people that had people or loved ones in long term care? Was it the people with that knowledge, with that uh, that uh, that knowledge of long term care that are that were saying that they were the ones, the four and five that wanted to see change? That that, that first hand experience. In fact, Jill, what we found is that whether you had a loved one in long term care during the pandemic or whether you didn't. Um, that appetite, that big, big appetite for significant change, and we'll talk about some of those changes in a moment, uh, was there regardless. And so, you know, I think some of the things that happened in those care facilities was less of a surprise to people who had a loved one in there, maybe because they, they understood to an extent in a way that if you don't have someone in a that you love and care about, um, you know, maybe they understood a little bit more about the day-to-day operations and why things were happening the way they were happening. And in fact, a majority of people who had a loved one in long-term care uh, came through it saying, look, yeah, it was not ideal, but in fact, the care facility that I that, that my loved one was in did everything it could and did the best job that it could uh, in order to, to stave off the, the deaths and, and the outcomes that occurred. At the same time, a significant segment, about 40% of that group, said, no, my long-term care facility or my loved one's long-term care facility failed us. So there is that split, but where we don't see a split is, is in whether or not you've been personally touched by the long-term care experience Regardless of that, people want to see change. 
So when you look at how many people responded to this and said, yes, significant change is needed, did you ask or get to get clarification on what significant change would look like? So the biggest responses, the most frequent responses on what should change, what what should look different, there's a desire to see more money spent in these facilities, uh, more people hired. The people who are hired should be paid more. These are the things that, that people um, are, are, are prioritizing as, as the, the most significant changes they're looking for. In addition, they really want to see more and more stringent enforcement of standards. So that's a big part as well of, of what uh, Canadians are looking for when they think about uh, the changes uh, that, that come or the potential changes that would come with long-term care or an overhaul of the system. I found it interesting when when looking at that, and and you touched on this, because I think a lot of it, the criticism isn't being... Uh, thrown on the workers. The criticism is in the regulations and the the baseline level of care and if that's being maintained. Because even as we saw things, uh, remembering a few months ago coming out of Quebec, it came to light that some of the inspections were actually being done over the phone. An inspector would call and say, are you doing this, this and this? Yes, you are. Okay, thanks. We've done this. Check off the box, which I think came as a surprise to a lot of people. And people would say something like that absolutely needs to change. You know, Jill, if anything, this this has given, you know, tens of millions of Canadians with no connection to long-term care a real education in, in terms of how the system operates, where the gaps and the weaknesses have been, and what they want to see shored up. So money, a big part of the conversation, uh, better standards, more enforcement, a big part of the conversation. Interestingly, I think one of the things we see is that uh, – you know, you, you get into sort of the jurisdictional bun fights, but it's up to the provinces to administer and take care of the enforcement side of things and to basically oversee long-term care facilities and in some cases operate in their provinces. You've seen the prime minister come out and say, look, we've earmarked billions of dollars to spend on long-term care. Uh, it's federal money, so who's in charge? For the most part, Canadians don't really care about that. They just want to know that government regardless of what level of government we're talking about or dealing with, is doing what needs to be done. But I think that that's a pretty significant signal to various politicians at different levels of government to say, you know what, people want to see the improvements, they want to see the change, they're less less interested in who implements what, and you know what, just cooperate and get it done. Which I think makes sense in that, again, if the the baseline level of care is set, like you said, who cares if it's the federal government or the provincial government setting it? Let's just make sure that we're keeping those standards in place. But people also have a lot of opinions on private care versus public care. That's right. So what one of the significant takeaways was, again, around people who had had experience with the system had less to do with the public-private line and more to do with the size of the facility. So that was interesting because a lot of attention, a lot of scrutiny about private operators, and indeed there have been very bad private operators, but there were also publicly operated uh, facilities that, that did not have great outcomes either. And indeed the family members, the loved ones of those in those long-term care facilities were more inclined to say and and had said more often that if it was a smaller facility, things went better than if it was a larger facility or one of many facilities operated across a chain. 
So who was operating it seemed to matter less than the size of the facility. So now, as we have conversations about whether there's a place and a role for private care in this country, um, that, that is part of the conversation. And, and a slight majority, about 60%, say yes, uh, private care should be phased out. There should be no place for private long-term care facilities in Canada. Um, but you've got 40% who say no, no, if, if they're properly supervised and properly maintained and if the investments are there and if the workers are being paid properly, uh, then then a private care home may, may be the, the right answer for some people and it should be their choice. And indeed, when we think about private care operators, yes, there are the big for-profit chains that, that have a duty to their shareholders and we know who they are and, and how they operate. Um, but also, in many cases, it's a religious organization. It might be a church or, or a religious order that's operating the care home, and in which case, you know, maybe they're taking care of people within their parish. That duty of care and that level of scrutiny is a little bit more community-based. And some people are saying, well, is government really a better operator in that situation than, than a private operation? So that, that, I think, is still open to some debate, but Canadians definitely tilting more towards public or government operation. And in, it looks like in B.C. as well as Ontario, according to these results, uh, people uh, say that they are more willing to pay more. You see that across the board, a slight, a slight uh, majority nationally and certainly some significant majorities in British Columbia and Ontario in other parts of the country saying, look, if my income taxes had to increase in order to create the capacity to better fund long-term care facilities in this country in order to overhaul the system, they would pay for it. And that, Jill, is pretty significant because I ask this question a lot when it comes to canvassing Canadians on changes they want to see. You know, what about climate change? What about, you know, uh, taking care of vulnerable children? What about poverty allevi- alleviation? Um, people always say they want more funding, they want more investment, but they're not always prepared to really put their money where their mouth is. And in this case, you do see... Uh, uh, just over half of Canadians saying, yeah, I'd pay more tax in order to shore up this system and ensure that it is improved and we don't have the outcomes that we had during the pandemic. All right. Interesting, interesting findings. We will leave it there. Shanchi, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, as you can imagine, if you've not dealt with having a child who needs medical care, needs extended hospital treatment, you can imagine how stressful that is, even if you've not had first-hand experience. We saw this post that was put out by a friend of a family saying, Vancouver friends or friends with friends in Vancouver, can you please help this family by any chance? And it goes on to talk about what they are going through and what they are looking for as far as that assistance. And joining me on the line now to talk a bit more about this is Kristen Kelm. Kristen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know that uh, we kind of called you to come on the show and this isn't something uh, you've done before. So I appreciate so much you joining us to talk about this. Can you start by telling us about Addison? Addison is 17 and is in need of care. What has been happening there? Uh, yeah, so um, at the beginning of May, Addison started having um, just some strange chest pain. 
And uh, after a few trips into the local GP and the ER, um, things just continued to get worse. And um, he started having some neurological symptoms, uh, not being able to walk, tingling numbness in his legs and lower extremities. So my husband and I made the decision to uh, come in to Vancouver, we're from Chilliwack, um, to Children's Hospital. He was assessed at the ER there and then transferred um, to where we currently are, which is BGH. Uh, we've been here for over a month now, and he has been diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia. Um, and yeah, we're just uh, continuing to be here and, and he's in treatment. That's it's just got to be so stressful and and going through this. Do you have any idea or have doctors been able to tell you at this point how long Addison could be getting treatment? Um, we don't know. Uh, he's had his first round of chemo um, and it could be anywhere from six months to a year. Uh, so at this point, dealing with this, as you mentioned, you and your family are from Chilliwack and getting this treatment in Vancouver. What does your family, what do you need now as far as support to help get through this? You know, we're, we've been really lucky. We have had lots of friends and family and even perfect strangers donate to our GoFundMe um, as we're looking at about a $20,000 bill over the next six months trying to coordinate, you know, staying here with him. Um, but not all families are that lucky. Um, and housing is not cheap, as most people know in Vancouver, or easy to find. And there aren't very many supports other than Ronald McDonald House for families to stay together here while receiving treatment. And that was the first thing when I first started reading about this and saw what was happening. And I think a lot of people might think of Ronald McDonald House because we do hear such great things about that. But is that even an option in this case? Um, it has not been an option that has presented, been presented to us by uh, the social worker at the hospital. Um, I do know, I have looked into it myself, uh, just from suggestions from friends. Um, but from, to my knowledge, they are currently full. And there, there was also the issue of the fact you mentioned coming to Children's Hospital as well as VGH, but there was, there was also the, the age. So Addison is 17, and I think that might be surprising to people as well, that when you're in the healthcare system, that you, when you're 17, you're actually considered an adult. So what does that mean then as far as how the care program might be different? Yeah, so I was surprised about that as well. Um, having dealt with children before with my youngest child, um, I didn't realize that Children's Hospital does not treat anyone under the or over the age of 17, pardon me. Um, so that's why they transferred us here to VGH. Uh, so for us, that meant, you know, having to seek permission to be able to stay with him. Uh, if he is still a minor, you know, in our eyes, and at 17, you can't really advocate for yourself. Um we did the, the I have to say the nurses and the doctors here at VGH have been incredibly accommodating and are have been wonderful to work with and they have tried their very best to make everything work for us as a family but there's a lot more hoops to jump through and for treatments and procedures you know things that would be standard at children's hospital like sedation um, aren't standard here at VGH so it, it is a different um, I guess the care here is different when you're talking about a 17-year-old. 
Right. And and you mentioned as well off the top that your family is based in Chilliwack. And I would imagine that with Addison being at VGH and getting the treatment there, and like you said, you don't know how many months this is going to go. It's not feasible, really, to think that you are able to commute back and forth at Chilliwack to VGH and, and be there for Addison. No, well, that's just it. I mean, my I have already... Uh, applied for leave of absence from my job. My husband has to go back to work and we have another child. So in order to keep our family together and um, keep everybody kind of functioning and going, we've had to relocate to Vancouver. Uh, the post that we originally saw, which was from a family member or a friend uh, of yours, talked about uh, kind of doing a swap or looking for somebody that might have a short-term rental in Vancouver, someplace hopefully uh, within the range close to VGH. So is that something that if somebody was able to come up with that, and from what I understand, it wouldn't, even, it wouldn't have to be free accommodation, but maybe something that wouldn't uh, be a huge bill. What kind of an impact or what kind of, how would that help things? Well, I mean, it would be huge. I mean, right now we have a place for for August um, that is wheelchair accessible for him. And uh, it's going to cost us $4,000 for the month, just for one month. So, um, you know, any of the funds that we have raised will be eaten up fairly quickly, just, just paying for our accommodations. And so do you need a place then, if somebody's listening to this, because oftentimes we do talk about people that are in need of accommodation, even short-term accommodation, and, and a listener will hear it and be very, very generous and come forward. Uh, just to make sure people know this, though, so do you need a place then, or the, the kind of must-haves, then it would have to be near VGH and be wheelchair accessible? Yeah, we need to be within 30 minutes of VGH. Um, it does have to be wheelchair accessible. And, I mean, ideally, we would like two bedrooms just because we are a family of four. Uh, In the meantime, then, what do you do while hoping that somebody comes forward and does this? Or what do you do in the meantime? Uh, Right now, my husband and I swap off every three days, um, staying here at the hospital with Addison and and being at home with our other child. And we have a, you know, a mattress that we set up on the floor every night. And that's where we sleep. And um, we just kind of make the best of what we're the situation we're in right now all right well hopefully uh, somebody uh, i know this post is being shared and hopefully people will see that and perhaps somebody is hearing this today and has uh, accommodation that maybe would fit and would work out for you uh, we can have people contact us or unless there's somewhere else somewhere else so you would like us to get that information to you if it does come forward but uh, thank you so much i know it can't be easy uh, talking about this in public but thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk about this today Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.